This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Good day, listeners, and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Amos Van. And I'm Ryan Pistorius. And we'll be your hosts for this episode. Our guest for today is one of the most seasoned veterans in the Ottawa legal community. Janice Payne is a named partner of Nelligan O'Brien Payne LLP and has had over 40 years of experience practicing in both the public service and the private sector. She completed her LLB at the University of Ottawa in 1974 and was called to the Ontario Bar in 1976. Since then, she has served as lead counsel in numerous class actions and employment-related cases, and has also served alongside the Nelligan O'Brien Payne firm as representative counsel for Nortel and CanWest. Janice also represented Canada's Inuit in the residential school's settlement negotiations and in subsequent proceedings. Janice's contributions to the legal community has been plentiful and significant so significant that she was recognized by Best Lawyers as 2017's Lawyer of the Year for Labor and Employment Law. Additionally, and perhaps more impressively, Janice was awarded the Queen Elizabeth's Diamond Jubilee Medal. Outside of her legal practice, Janice has worked as a board member with the National Youth Orchestra, the Ottawa Chamber Music Society, the Great Canadian Theatre Company, and the Ottawa Community Foundation. Janice. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us about your early life. So where did you grow up and when did you first know that you wanted to be a lawyer? My father was in the Navy, so we moved around a lot. I was a Navy brat. I was born in Victoria, uh, but within weeks, my mother and I flew across the country to join him in Halifax, where they were living. He was actually at sea when I was born. Um, but then as a child we, and as a family we moved around a lot and it was I think a wonderful thing for the strength of my relationship with my sisters. I was the oldest of four girls um, and we still to this day remain very close. You completed your LLB at the University of Ottawa. Back then in the 1970s, what did you find was the greatest challenge when you were in law school? Being a woman. Uh, uh, Except that we had a, I think our class was really the beginning of the wave in terms of increased numbers of women at school. We were still 10%. For some time there had been a token 10% and that's exactly how many women were in the class. But we, we were a strong group uh, and surrounded by very supportive colleagues in the school. There was, there was no problem in terms of our relationship with each other, relationship with the young men and the older men in the class. Uh, and no serious issues with the faculty either, but there was a sense still that we were a minority, that this wasn't, that was still unusual for women to be in law school. But it wasn't long after that before things started to shift. How did those things start to shift? Like, what do you think kind of prompted that change as 
people started to accept that, okay, women shouldn't just be, as you say, the token 10%, but rather like full and equal partners in this endeavor? I think one of the reasons it started to shift is that we did very well. We did, we did very <laughs> well with sense. school. <laughs> I had a, a colleague, Melda Karen, and she and I, all the way through school, were first and second in the class. So it, wow. it, 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 we did well, and so did many of our colleagues. And we weren't the first class where women had achieved well. Uh, and, and so gradually, at some point, and I think it must have been shortly after our year, the school started to relax on that tokenism. Uh, and took women in on merits. And you both know what has happened since. Women can do as well as men in the legal profession, and, and, and people started to realize that, that they, they could be an advantage even. So I, I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened. So with all of those experiences that you had in, in law school, well, actually, Going into law school, actually, this is this is actually also an interesting point here. How did you find the transition from your time at Carleton? Because you did a Bachelor of Arts at Carleton University. Yes, I did. So, how did you find the transition from your undergrad to your LLB? You asked me a little while ago, and I didn't answer it. What took me to law? Maybe I should start there. In about grade six, I had it in my head that I wanted, for some unknown reason, to get into politics. So I inquired about what sort of education you had to have in order to succeed in politics. And a guidance counselor told me law, and so I thought, well, maybe that's something I should look at. Um, And I never really lost track of that. It would come back to me once in a while. As a student, all the way up through high school, my talent was languages, and the teachers gave my parents feedback that really I needed to stay in languages, and and that's what I should be doing. So that's what I did at Carleton. I did a degree in in French and Spanish. Do you still speak both of those? Yes, but not as well. Okay, we won't won't test you or anything. Not as well, but I used to speak them very well, and they come back after a while. I had not lost track of law. I met my first husband at Frosh Week at Carleton. Oh, wow. And asked him what he was there for. Oh, well, he was going to study law at Carleton, and he thought he would go to law school eventually. And I remember saying to him, we didn't know each other very well at that point, oh, I thought about law. Oh, he laughed. This is 19, what was it? I don't remember anymore. 71, 70. Yes, of course it was. It was, 71 was law school, 60. Eight, wow, wow, or or nine, probably. Uh, yeah, sixty-eight. No, sixty-eight. Uh, and uh, he just said, "You'll get over that." And he went off and did his courses. Uh, he and I had a relationship for a number of years, and actually were married briefly. Relationship didn't last, uh, but. I was interested in his classes. He would tell me about them, and I thought, that sounds very interesting. (laughs) But I kept up with the languages and did three years of a four-year program. Uh, The university started to reduce my scholarship, as they often do once they have you. The the funds don't necessarily last all the way through. So I was in arguing with the, the awards office about that at the end of my third year and saw a sign for entrance scholarship to law at Ottawa U. And that's what prompted me. I thought, well, if they'll pay me, if they'll give me some money, maybe maybe that's worth a try. Yeah. Yeah. So 
that's what I did. I applied to Ottawa U. It was before you had to write LSAT, so I didn't. Ah, those mm, yes. Who knows? I yes. might have. I might not have gotten in. <laughs> yes. But I was able to just whip over there in the spring and say I'd like to come, and was fortunate enough to be interviewed by a professor who had done his degree in languages. He teased me at first and asked me, what do languages have to do with law? What are you doing here? <laughs> and he said, I just said, well, surely language is the tool of a lawyer. Surely. He laughed and said, you're in. And then he found me some money. And I, it was, to answer your last question, it was a tremendous adjustment from Carlton. Because there was nothing, I thought, at that time, creative about any of this. You know, it, this was just completely different. It was all in English, and that was already strange. And I remember sitting in the law library thinking, there isn't a picture in any of these books. <laughs> I, I'm sure there isn't a picture. They really could be improved. <laughs> yes, could very be improved. Much. Uh, and I just wasn't sure. Uh, my father had tried to talk me out of it. He was worried that I would have trouble getting work, that, this, that it would just be troublesome for me. Uh, and I ignored him. It was almost a challenge to me uh, when I signed up and got in. But I started to get anxious before the first set of exams because I began to think maybe this, maybe he's right, maybe this wasn't right for me. So I phoned him and said, I, I, I think you're right. Uh, I think I may pull out before the exams. He said, I'm going to meet you for coffee. <laughs> and instead of being supportive, he said, no daughter of mine quits. You will stay until <laughs> you write your exams. I, I was so encouraged from him. I'm like, oh, this is, oh, wait, okay. <laughs> this is a tough love moment. Okay, yeah. that's fine. So, less cute, but still good. You uh, know, all right. I it mean, wasn't paying the bills. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I mean, that could have been like the one defining fateful moment in your career, right? And now look where you are now. Yeah. You're one of Ottawa's most reputable lawyers. And I mean, it, that says a lot. I mean, Many thanks to your to your father for yes. being able to encourage you yeah. in here. Yeah. Yes. He he just knew that I was getting anxious about exams, and there probably was no reason for that. And well, I mean, it, but it was I think it was great. Gets anxious about yes. exams. Yes. First set yeah. in yes. law school. So, so I, I don't think there was no reason for that. I think there was a very valid <laughs> reason for that. that I think law students today are still going through. So. Is mm -hmm. that I'm I'm actually almost glad yes. to hear that. In our day at Ottawa U, there were two classrooms. The first year Whoa. class was 100. Okay. The second year class was two-thirds that size. Was it just wow. two years? Two. It was three years, okay. second and third year class. Oh, okay. okay. Was, was one-third that size. So we knew that a third of us were going to fail. Oh, wow. Uh, that they would cut us. The, oh, the bottom third. Goodness. Wow. Uh, okay. And, and it, it was a paper chase law school. The dean, Dean Feeney at the time said, look to your left, look to your right. One of you won't be here next year. Wow. And so oh. it was... It, there was real reason to be concerned, and I just wasn't at all sure that this was going to work for me. Oh my goodness. And it took, it took finishing school and a couple of years of practice before I finally realized, yeah, this is, this is going to be fine. It takes a while yeah. to figure it out. And of course, practice or any job that you might get after law school is very different than school. So when you say before you... It was, you know, it was a couple of years of practice before you realized that this was, in fact, working. You know, what, what do you mean? Like, can you, can you elaborate on that? I mean, in the first couple of years, was it just that you weren't sure if this had been the right career? Or was it that, you know, you just hadn't found 
the fit of, of where to work or the people to work or the industry? Like, you know, what was what was it that you struggled with in those first couple of years and at what point did it click? In the first year, it was it was just overwhelming. The responsibility of looking after clients because the firm was small in those days. I was the seventh lawyer. Al O'Brien was off at the bar, so there were five more senior lawyers there, and they were quite happy to have me deal directly with clients, as we still are here. So I I was actually asked to assist Dennis Power, who was an elegant power at the firm in those years, so I was initially asked to assist Dennis in his family law practice. Um, and I really enjoyed my relationship with him, but as a result, I really was thrown into the deep end with family law. The, the responsibility of that as a young person, I'm trying to think, that would be 76. So I was 25, and I couldn't imagine charging for my time. I couldn't imagine being worthy of, of that and was uncomfortable with the practicalities. I just wasn't sure it could work. We didn't have the training you were getting now in school in terms of the practical side of law. It was all just the law and research and learning the law. Um, even mooting wasn't done anything like to the same extent as it now is. So arriving here and suddenly applying all of that to real people was utterly overwhelming. I would go home almost every day in tears just from the pressure because I took it seriously and yeah. I, I didn't... As you should. I as mean, I should. Yeah, and while I had a wonderful mentor in Dennis Power, it, there wasn't the same awareness of that role. So it, it was no criticism of the team of lawyers at the time, but they still didn't quite know what to make of me as the first woman and, uh, and how to deal with me. Staff here, the senior female staff resented me. It, so because you were a woman who was also was a, woman a lawyer. Who was now, now a lawyer. And so it, it, there was a real adjustment on, on all sides to, to my presence here that took a year or so. But I still find that lawyers in their first year of practice tend to get anxious and panic. So whenever I have a new lawyer joining my team, I tell them that entire story and tell them not to let it worry them, that it's a process, you'll be fine. Talk to me about it, talk to somebody, uh, but don't be surprised if it's an adjustment in your first year of practice, it's inevitable. I mean, I, I know one of the things that I've spoken to a lot of um, our classmates about is there's still a feeling, I think, that there isn't enough uh, training for practical skills. But I guess in comparison to kind of the law school that you're describing, I mean, we're worlds away from, from that. I mean, the, I think the you are. clinic opportunities and the mm -hmm. expansion of the mooting program and even just the way that professors will will try to at least work in some basic concepts about working with clients or... We have none of that. Yeah. You have, you have more ethics right. training, more writing training. We had none of that. We did have a trial advocacy class that I don't think I registered for. <laughs> I didn't register for any labor or employment. 
I did do the advanced family, thinking that might be useful. Advanced research, thinking that might be useful. Uh, but I didn't at all have a sense of what I wanted to do either, which is a good thing, frankly, because you need to try out a few things till you figure out what clicks. I did. I helped in family law for about two or three years before deciding that is not what I want to do. Um, and all at about the same time, I was building my practice in a number of other areas. The firm was great. They were quite happy to sort of watch me and see what I might do. <laughs> so I, I tried a number of different things. I had a number of musical clients for a while and, and thought maybe the arts was what I would like to do. But it was hard to make a go of that then in Ottawa. So that clearly wasn't going to be something I could develop with a successful profit margin at all <laughs> in Ottawa. I was keeping up some family. Uh, condominium was brand new in those years. Mm -hmm. And a, a, a former student of the firm, who I think articled right after, two years after me, uh, and was practicing elsewhere, referred me to a board of condominium uh, directors who were trying to deal with the condo just after the developer had left. Condominiums were brand new, nobody had any expertise, and so I made it my point to learn. Um, and started to build a practice here on condominium law that uh, uh, Jim Davidson, who arrived years later, assisted me in and then ran with it. <laughs> um, so I was doing that, and then in the early 80s there was a recession leading to a number of terminations. Some of the earliest wrongful dismissal cases happened then. There had been earlier ones, but they were rare because in the 70s, it was still more the pattern to see people working somewhere for life. In the early 80s, that all changed. I thought it was just due to the recession in those years. Uh, I attracted a number of clients on my own individuals that I looked after and they started to really consume my time. I was worried about that because I thought this isn't going to last, you know, everything will shift back. But the world never changed. People then started to move both by their own choice and by the employer's choice and so I was able to begin to build a really successful practice in employment law starting then. And that's what I found I like doing. And that, in spite of the fact that you didn't do employment law in school. Courses, no courses, no. Which I think will be somewhat reassuring to some students who are like, I, I have to do the thing that I, I want to spend my career and I have to take courses in that right now or else I'm never going to get jobs or I'm never going to... You kind of found a, a way to just bounce from thing to thing until you found the thing that clicked. Yeah, so. that's right. And, and I think still... Well, there's nothing wrong with trying to figure out what you might enjoy no, doing in law school. I think it's very difficult to figure that out till you try it. I, I've often said that the thing that law school, and, and school in general can sometimes be most useful at, is figuring out the things you don't want to do. Yes, because that's probably Because you take true. courses and stuff, and you're like, I, I just, I cannot stay awake. I, I just, I cannot be interested in this material. Okay, maybe that's not for you. But what you actually do want to do, law and, and any field, most are so broad in terms of the, yes. the little niches you can go into that it's almost impossible to go through all of that in school. I had an early thought that I wanted to do criminal law. I went into law school thinking I wanted to change the world. That, that, was, right. I, that was one of the things in my head and criminal law was like with so many lawyers.
years, uh, uh, law students, was at the top of the list. The firm did no criminal law, uh, but they said, sure, sure, you give it a try, whatever you wow. want to do. Uh, John Nelligan and Dennis Power were remarkable that way. Um, I tried it and found out very quickly that I did not want to do it. The clients were not all innocent. <laughs> they were probably involved in cases I couldn't win, uh, and I didn't, I didn't like that. Uh, so I ended up, I had clients, I had an attempt murder in my first year of practice, young woman, and I thought she could go to jail. I don't, I think she needs somebody more experienced and I moved her, moved her over to Donnie Bain. That was one of my first referrals to Don Bain. Uh, and uh, he, had, he didn't want it either. But I was so glad that she had what I thought was the best at least. And, and I, I knew, I didn't think that that bar and that practice was going to be for me. Civil litigation, yes, but not criminal. So. The firm was great in, in sort of allowing me to, to figure it out for myself and, and being there to support me and talk about it. But they really did let me find my own way. When I started law school, I was very much into doing criminal law as well. Our professors and, and our faculty tell us that, oh, your interest will change when you're in law school. And I thought, no, it's not going to change. Even if it does change, it's not going to be a huge drastic change for me at all. But yeah, it's... It's it's it really astounds me how like, we tend to adapt to certain spheres so well. And from your experience, from the last f over forty years, you've adapted to a lot of change. Was there ever any overlap between the public and the private spheres? As as we mentioned earlier in, in the podcast episode, you have had experience in both the public and the private sectors. Was there any overlap, like similarities that you may have found in these two different spheres? No, I never worked in the public sector. Okay, thank you. Thank what, you. what that means is that I've looked after employment clients in both sectors. Okay. So yes. I never I thought about it, but as you can see, I articled here and stayed. Um, I've had done a number of different things while I've been here. It doesn't at all feel like I've been doing the same thing for over 40, it's almost 44, but I stayed. So I never did pursue a career in, in, in government or in-house, although I thought about it. Once in a while I would think about should I stay or should I make a move, but I it didn't take me very long to figure out that I was in a very good place and that it suited me well. And I realized I just couldn't do better than this for me. There are so many choices of work that you can do with a law degree though. Uh, private practice is certainly only one and it doesn't suit everybody. It doesn't. Sometimes I think if you have a love of pure law, policy work, for example, you'd be very disappointed because you don't get to do law every day. A lot of the time, dealing with the kind of practice I have, I feel more like a psychologist than a lawyer. I have to be very careful about that. <laughs> you know, the clients constantly need managing and reassuring, and, and a, a, we, a lot of our role is just that. 
uh, always in the context of what you can do for them as a lawyer, but there, there's a, a lot of that. So in terms of overlap or the work in the public sector versus the private, the legal regime in the federal and provincial public sectors is very different in employment law than it is in private, in the private sector. So while I do do some work on the public side, I tend to count on a couple of my partners who know an awful lot more about that than I do, and I get their involvement or assistance when I do move into that side of the law. It's very different. Well, one of the big, um, I guess, public side uh, cases that, that stood out to me was what Amos mentioned earlier in the interview regarding the residential school mm-hmm. settlement. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of uh, Legal scholars, uh, the dean, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, um, have mentioned or discussed reconciliation as perhaps the most pressing issue of our time, the most pressing legal issue of our time, and how we respond to both the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, but also um, just generally the the issues that have have plagued Canada um, regarding our treatment of Indigenous peoples. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about that experience and what you learned from that or or what it meant to you to be part of that process? It was huge for me. It was uh, was a privilege to be involved in that process. Um, It started because I had done some work in class actions on the employment side and one of my partners at the time, Dougal Brown, very capable lawyer, uh, had been acting for Inuit organizations in the North for years. He had actually uh, worked with Inuit organizations before law school. Um, And what happened was we were told that Frank Iacobucci had been asked by the federal government of the day to try and solve all the different actions that had been started across the country uh, related to Indian residential schools. Uh, Our clients, the Inuit, had learned that this process had started, that he was meeting with all of the lawyers involved in those actions in Toronto and working towards a solution for them. And they weren't at the table. They hadn't been thought of. They had had their own residential school experience. So I remember that he came walking down the hall and said, Janice, my client wants to start an action. Frank Yacobucci. No, this is Dougald Brown. Oh, Dougald Brown. (laughs) He came down and said, my client wants to start an action, or basically my client wants to be at the table and, and participate in this process, and it appears we're going to have to start an action to get their attention. Uh, He said, I'll start the action if you handle the negotiation side of it. And I said, I'd be delighted to. Uh, so we, we sort of worked together on starting the action and then reached out to Mr. Yakabuchi uh, and said, we want to be at the table. You're outside my mandate, he said, and I remember saying to him, well, that needs to be fixed because we shouldn't be. Uh, so he made some inquiries and in fact, there was already a Quebec lawyer that think was at the table. Maybe he was just trying to get to the table. But I ended up meeting a colleague in Quebec looking after Inuit interests in that province that was trying to participate as well. Uh, In any event, we got the call and said, well, okay, 
you can participate. And that ended up being the start of at least two years of constant trips to Toronto to, be, to participate in those discussions and make sure that the Inuit were part of the process. It was an amazing experience. The, what I learned about the opportunity to participate with other Indigenous representatives and lawyers at the table. Um, some of them amazing, some of them less amazing. Um, to watch how Frank Iacobucci handled those negotiations and to participate in a process that would at least bring something to these communities was a privilege. In the process I heard amazing stories both at the table and later on in the court approval process. I, I was involved in representing the Inuit. I think we had been seven courts that had to bless the class action settlement. Uh, there was essentially one class action that, that pulled together all of the others into a settlement that we had to ask the courts to bless. And I went across the north for that purpose. The judges, all without even speaking to one another, it seemed to me anyway, had in their own minds decided that any Indigenous person that appeared at court to speak would be allowed to speak, even though the rules in class actions are it's only someone opposing the settlement. None of these people wanted to oppose it, they just wanted to be heard. And we listened to story after story after story. It was one time, I think it was in Whitehorse, uh, I looked across the court and after listening to a particular compelling story, everybody was weeping. The judge, all the lawyers, everybody in the room. It was an amazing experience. My personal involvement with the process ended after the settlement was approved. Then there was the implementation process and what part of the settlement was truth and reconciliation. There was money allocated for that. That was part of what we fought for and got. Um, the implementation of the process, the <clears throat> process by which Indigenous people could apply for compensation <clears throat> was handled by other lawyers in my firm. I didn't do that, although I was there to assist at the beginning. Uh, and it was handled by a wealth of lawyers across the country. I didn't have a personal involvement in truth and reconciliation, although I was very aware of it. it was not a solution for these people. It gave them some recognition and some compensation. The challenge we had in negotiating that settlement was that many of the claims would be statute barred and it, they might have been difficult to prove. Um, so we at least knew that we were giving them something where they might not have been able to get anything. There was a process to speak and get some compensation and in some cases additional compensation where their experience was extreme. This 
August, I had a chance to go to Wabano and listened for the first time in my experience, because I wasn't involved in that process, to the indigenous community speaking about the Indian residential school settlement. And I sat there and listened to how limited it was to address their needs. And I understood and was tremendously moved by it. There was, was a session at Wapano, um, and it didn't hurt me at all to hear that we weren't being thanked for that. Uh, but it, it was, it truly opened my eyes. It wasn't that it was a useless process. But in many ways, it was a demeaning process for those communities to go through. And it was tremendously important for me to hear that. So it, it, it was a highlight of my career, even though it was, it was very different than most of the rest of the work that I had done, and a privilege. And it will, that, that will always be how I feel about it. Wow, that, that was a very, very, certainly a very unique experience that you had, as you said, the privilege of being able to take part in for all these years as well. I'm just like, I'm yeah. just sitting here just like processing this. Like, yeah. This, yeah. It, it's, not, it's not often, it's very rare that we get to hear such Such a, a raw uh, story. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, the, the raw, unedited story of what happened at those negotiations. And at the settlement approvals. We, yeah. we sat and listened. We were told by the court, these people, will, not that we would have opposed it ourselves, no. but these mm -hmm. people will be allowed to speak and we will listen. Yeah. The stories were, were just amazing. I, I remember one indigenous person, First Nations, I'm sure, uh, talking about his experience at a school run by nuns and the abuse he suffered there. And, and arriving as a young child and seeing these people in robes. And he paused, he looked over at us and said, a bit like you. They looked a bit like you. We needed to hear that. We needed to have our eyes opened. Um, no speaker said they were opposed to the settlement, but it was terribly important for those communities to be able to tell their stories. And I've, I've since learned how much storytelling is such an important part of Indigenous communities. I'm so grateful to the judges that those stories got told. There was at least that that happened through the process. And that through truth and reconciliation, those stories are still being told. It's so important for the non-Indigenous people to hear those stories and pay attention. And at least that has come out of the process. Certainly, certainly. And, and uh, in our legal training, in, our, in, in law school now, we have a lot of focus on Indigenous representation and their stories and their voices. And we are taught to be 
very sensitive, even very early on, at, since day one of, of, of law school, we're very, we were taught to be very sensitive and be very, and be very attentive to indigenous issues, the history of, of indigenous peoples and what they've gone through, even to this day as well. And that's one thing, I'm not sure if you had that opportunity back when you were in law school in the 70s. Was there anything like that Nothing. in the 70s? Nothing. Zero. Zero. Wow. No attention paid to indigenous community. Wow. Um, and now you see law schools establishing entire courses dedicated yeah. only yeah. to that. It's Mandatory sure. courses for, for first year students. Yeah. And of course there's education in, in elementary schools mm. now. Yeah. Uh, which is just wonderful, but no, um, nothing, nothing. It was a different time, and thank goodness it's different now. Uh, and that, for all its flaws, the Indian Residential Schools Negotiation and Settlement was the beginning of it. It was the beginning. Lots of change in the past 40, mm -hmm. 44 years. Wow, that, yes. that is something. Wow. A lot of change. Yeah, wow, wow. So that was an amazing an amazing perspective that we got. Uh, we really appreciate the, uh, the perspective on your involvement with the negotiations here. And moving into another sector, which also is a very interesting one as well, more on the financial side, your involvement, or at least your your firm's involvement with Nortel's insolvency. I remember I was only four years old at the time because Nortel was about the Nortel insolvency issue was about two thousand the year two thousand two thousand one. That sounds right, and it went on for years. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. Yes, I was only four years old, but even then, somehow I remember from talking with my with my dad because my dad used to be one of the contractors. He didn't work at Nortel, but he used to contract with Nortel. Uh, my, dad, my dad works in information technology. So even I heard at four years old, wow, that, this is a major case. And then Nortel is folding up and, uh, and the major shrinking of the tech sector here in Ottawa, as well as a major company that represented not just Ottawa, but all of Canada as well. That's right. How is your experience working in the Nortel uh, insolvency situation? Like, could you speak to some of your experiences there? Sure. I had, uh, in my employment law practice, acted against Nortel for years. We, we always had clients with Nortel on the other side, and of course they went through a lot of downsizing too before the insolvency proceedings. So we started and finished one class action against them in the context of one of those downsizing exercises and had started a second. Uh, and we're looking to have that action certified. We were opposed. I didn't expect to have any difficulty being certified, but in the context of that process, council mentioned there may be a problem. Uh, and it came as a complete surprise to us. Nobody thought Nortel would do anything but last. It. it I thought it might be a lot of nonsense that they were just trying to discourage us in terms of moving forward with the class action and of course we didn't we didn't drop it we continued to press and then 
they filed under the CCAA and any legal proceedings, everything was put on hold. People's individual settlements that had been negotiated over the years outside of that latest class action, if they involved ongoing salary continuance, were stopped. Everything was frozen. Uh, we applied to be representative counsel for the employees in the insolvency proceeding. We had done so much work, more than anybody, against Nortel, and they were Ottawa-based. It, it seemed to be obvious that we should be looking after the employees. In those days, and still, there are a small group of firms that do the insolvency work, all of them based in Toronto and known to the court. Uh, so we were surprised to find that we were contested by a Toronto firm who had done a lot of insolvency work for groups of employees, a lot of pension work, and there were some big pension issues, as you may know in that case. And the court, while they were polite to us, clearly favored the other firm to, to handle, on the rep, handle the representative counsel role, and partly because of their experience in pension matters. So they were appointed, but they needed, it was Koskiminski, they needed uh, somebody to look after the existing employees uh, and did not want to take that on as part of their role for former employees. Uh, and actually approached us and said, would you be willing to do that? And we said, sure. So we ended up having a representative counsel role for those employees that were still at Nortel and, and took care of them up to the point of termination uh, and ended up having a, a meaningful role in the process that we, we much enjoyed. As a result of the experience in that class action, we were certified as representative counsel in a couple of other class actions afterwards. Uh, so it was great experience. We learned a great deal. Uh, huge, huge learning experience for us, and uh, again, a privilege to be involved. Um, we did not have the same huge role that the other firm did, which was fine. Uh, but we watched them, uh, participated when it made sense, and as I say, learned a great deal. Uh, it went on for years and years before it was finally resolved with a settlement. Uh, our role tended to wane as it progressed because there were fewer and fewer remaining employees and less for us to do. Uh, but we remained an active participant until there was a settlement and were involved in the approval of that settlement and still had something to do until it was finally fully resolved. So when was the settlement finalized? I'm not going to remember years. I could get back to you on that if you okay. want me to, but I'm not going to remember the exact year. There are still, there's still work to be done in terms of approval of some final lawyer billings and so on in the settlement process, but we have not been involved for the last, gee, it must be four or five years. Uh, we've just kept an eye on things, but there hasn't been anything for us to do. Um, so I have, I'm, I don't have those things at my fingertips, I'm sorry, but uh, it, it is essentially finished. Employees have put in their claims, they've been approved. From the perspective of employees and former employees, it's now been done for a while.
Nice, very, very nice. That that is another highlight of your Absolutely. career as well. Absolutely, Certainly. insolvency work has been exciting, uh, and uh, and very interesting to do. Very Certainly, to do. and with all this work, with all these highlights, these large scale cases, and it's a very, very busy legal career. So, despite this busy legal career, you still had the time to do. To do to to pursue things outside of your of your law life, I mean, you were a board member of numerous organizations like the National Youth Orchestra, the Ottawa Chamber Music Society. At one point, you were even the president of the Ottawa Chamber Music yes, Society. For about nine years, I, I was uh, the president. It wasn't quite as big then, um, although there was still lots to do. Um, uh, I remember when I was first asked to take on that role, it was in year two of its existence that I became its president. So it really was in its early years. Uh, I remember going home and telling my husband and the kids about it. The kids would have been, oh my gosh, they would have been young at that time, but still quite, still beginning to be involved in music, just roared with laughter. What? Mom, what could they possibly want you to do for the chamber music? Uh, and I just assured them there would be the odd thing I could contribute. May not be musical talent, but I, there were other needs mm-hmm. when you're yeah. running an organization like that. But it was really very funny. And I, of course, remembered that when you thought that was perhaps because I had a musical career that I was involved with them, uh, but not at all. However, it was a way in a way to even understand more about what my husband and kids were doing and uh, and to participate in a way, in a different way, uh, in in their lives growing up. Because your daughter is still quite involved. Still a professional musician uh, in flute. Uh, my children were all taught music by their father. They were all learned piano. Oh, wow, nice. From their father. He took them all up to a certain level, and then the understanding was they would have an additional instrument as well. Oh, With Amelia, it was flute, and she loved her flute. She, she wasn't at all sure, not at all sure, she wanted to make a career out of it. Um, she didn't know what she wanted to do. She got to the end of high school in a state of complete distress about it. She, she didn't know what she wanted to do. She applied to McGill, she didn't know what she wanted to say, she wanted to do, and I kept saying, because she was by then very, very good at her flute, I said, use your flute to get in. And then look around, yeah. you know, look around, it will get you into a very good school. Oh, mama, anyway, that's what she did, ultimately. She uh, studied music, did her Bachelor of Music at McGill, did not want to leave, wanted to stay to do her master's. She couldn't imagine, she was never very good at change. And uh, just stayed at McGill, which is not the right thing to do for your master's, but she stayed and studied under a brilliant musician. And then finally realized it was time to leave and to make her way. Went to Toronto, that was quite an adjustment for her but uh, had great support there and little by little built a career as a professional musician in Toronto and then landed the job in Kingston. So she is principal flute at the Kingston Symphony but travels back and forth from Toronto and does a lot of music around Toronto and in Toronto with other orchestras and chamber groups. And 
uh, and is happy with that. She also has a side business, <laughs> a yarn store in Kensington Market. We, we oh, don't need to, wow. but it's all fingers. I've always said it's all fingers. Yeah, really good with your hands. Yes. yes. Uh, so she is able to make a career out of her two passions, which is lovely. Uh, the others uh, still have a passion for music. My youngest Jessie was brilliant with her violin and uh, still plays. Um, uh, as, as something she enjoys doing. Uh, and my son uh, is now teaching his our two granddaughters music, helping to teach them. He uh, still has a love for music. That's nice to hear. So it's, uh, it's just great. It's just great. So, I mean, music, uh, music was, you know, one element that at the very least tangentially you've been involved in through these organizations, but um, the other side is acting as well. Yes. Um, with yes. the uh, Great Canadian Theatre Company. Yes. Um, yeah. Were you the, the king in a production recently? or is the queen? I was King it? Duncan in King Macbeth. Duncan, that's what it was. Yes. But there was no way I was to be king. I was told by <laughs> the director, no, you are going to be queen, Duncan. Oh. And that's what I was. It was just wonderful. It was a great role, of course. Right. She's killed yes. quite early quite on. Quite <laughs> Very busy at the beginning and then gone. You just have to sit uh, so, in the back and watch yes, the rest of the that's right. Right. And for, for rehearsing and so on, it was terrific because I didn't have to be at all the rehearsals and, and uh, it was actually a much easier fit, uh, that role, than, than being Fair. prominent all the way through the play. Uh, although, he comes back as a ghost. True. And, and, yeah, true. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and that was almost the, my Very favorite part. Play. Yeah. So, yes, I've done the lawyer play for now 10 years, I think it is. Uh, every year I, I I just enjoy it tremendously and can't seem to to drop it uh, and the theater because I'm pretty good at the fundraising side too sure. doesn't really want me to <laughs> so I keep going back it's a, a great experience it's been a lot of fun yeah my my dad's an actor as well and he tells me it's it's a lot of fun when you get to work and he didn't work in any plays but oh, well he worked in some actually some early uh, Chinese plays not traditional Chinese plays but he worked in plays that were written back in the early 2000s um, he actually works now as a screen actor so for oh TV goodness. commercials TV series the odd film if there's ever a call for that so but uh, but yeah I mean uh, my dad loves doing that work actually I do a bit of voice a voice uh, acting work as well myself uh, that makes uh, sense with, <laughs> that, it does make sense <laughs> it does but yeah it's so much fun when, when you do it uh, it's just it's, a lovely break yes to and, be somebody else for a while true and, yeah. and also the relationship it's an all lawyer cast yep. so I meet exactly. lawyers I'd never meet and have a, 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 a chance to, to do that is great do you ever act with people that you've gone up against in court? Oh, yes. How is, how is that? Oh, yes. No problem. <laughs> no problem. This is a very collegial bar, yes, uh, yes. so it's not unusual to find friends on the other side of a file. Yeah, and, uh, or for that matter, now I have friends that have become judges. Right. A lot of the current bench I have known very well in, in my career. So it's a bit of acting. It's a bit of acting when you find yourself in court right. there, it's there's a reason why lawyers are good at acting especially advocates so it's just no problem you just switch into that role yeah it, it certainly is it's also a way for you to express yourself either in yourself yourself or in a different way as well and it's also a good way to 
to let out some some steam when yes. law is a very stressful environment yes. as well, and, and especially with your experience in the last forty years or so, there's a lot of stress that comes out of it, and and this is certainly a really good way to to express and to let Re- out some of that. Release some of yeah. that. That's right. Just have some fun. For sure. That's right. For sure. For sure. So when you were working. Um, with uh, in your roles as acting and being a board member and being president of these different uh, different societies, did you fi- find that that your legal training helped you in any way? And if so, how did it help you in these capacities? The the discipline of uh, of a law practice assists in almost anything you do. Um, the discipline of music is a great beginning for somebody wanting to get into law, frankly. So that helped in terms of the attention that I brought to other things, whether it was the acting or as a board member. You know that you should be there making a contribution, otherwise you shouldn't be bothering. And so you you find a way to do that or move on to a different organization and you take it seriously. The people you meet through that work end up being wonderful sources of referral later on of clients. Uh, And so it's good for the practice too. But that's not why I do the community work. I do the community work because I think it really is important to participate in that way in a community that you work in and are successful in. I think you owe something back to the community, and I think it's important for lawyers to do that as much as they can. Would that also be why, um, obviously, the, the Nelligan O'Brien Payne moot uh, just finished its, I think, 14th year it was? That's is that, right. Is that also kind of the impetus for giving back to the University of Ottawa and, and to students by, by sponsoring the moot and by returning every year to, to judge? At that yes, point? it's part of it. Selfishly, we meet a lot of very interesting first-year students. And we're always alive to the students that we might like to see. Uh, And so when some of those end up applying here, we feel like we've already seen them do something. We have lawyers and students who did the first-year MOOC. Now, it's not a recruiting exercise. That would not be (laughs) fair at that level. But some people really do shine. And... uh, and maybe more importantly, they see us and they think, I like those people. I should at least find out more about them. Maybe I should apply and find out more about them. So it's probably more that in terms of why it is that uh, some of the students we see end up here. Uh, but mostly it is about giving to the law school. We need to do that in order for the law school to think well of us and make referrals of students too, frankly. Uh, It's a win-win kind of exercise. We do a lot at the law school besides the first year mode. I participate with Professor Zweibel in her ADR course, the January course in first year. I do that every year. A number of our lawyers teach there. We are often involved with the trial advocacy program. There's an employment law program that our lawyers teach every year. Uh, so we like to be involved, we like to be seen there, we like to participate, we like the students and the faculty to see us too. And it works well for everybody, it's important. 
So for each time that you are involved with the law school, whether it may be the moot or through the courses that you are involved in, what inspires you when you see the next generation of lawyers? What makes you hopeful for the next generation of lawyers? That is one of the most exciting things at the moot, uh, is to see these young people so happy to be in law school, so excited about what the future might hold for them, so passionate and anxious to hear from us about what it's like. It is, for me, a huge highlight of participating in that process. I come home, my, my husband sends me off every uh, Saturday when we start the first year moot saying, have fun, I know you'll have fun. And I come back all excited. <laughs> you know, I was all come back that way. Oh, you, you can't believe these kids, you know, what I saw today. You can't believe it. It's wonderful. I wish you could see what I could see. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the Monday and to the finals and to the awards and the reception. It is wonderful to see what students who are keen and excited can do. Even when it doesn't count for marks and they have to work so hard to prepare, it, it really is exciting. So yeah, we were we judged at the most recent Elegant O'Brien Payne mood and yeah. we, we share the experiences too. It's it's really exciting and we're we're only in our second year of law school, but just looking back even just a year later from when we competed in at the Elegant O'Brien Payne mood and to see this class, the most recent the current class, the current one L class, is also exciting for us as well because we relate to them very closely as well and we see wow this is there could be, these could be people we'll be working with in the future. Yes. Right? So it's incredible to see from the other side of the table. Exactly. Yes. Oh, I, I now see what, what you were going through last <laughs> yes. year. Like, yes. Uh, yeah, yes. One can sympathize. Yes. Yes, for sure. And it's also a chance for us to really drill them on, on some questions and kind of just have a yeah. bit of fun on our own, you know? Yes. It is. It's, and you need to come prepared to do that. That's yes. what it's all about. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> it was just just great. I talked to Connor after the finals. Oh yes. And uh, I congratulated him at the reception, and he said, "Ah, oh, you're my favorite judge." I had judged him on the second round, uh, and I was just touched by that. I yeah. thought I must have been doing something right that yes. day that was helpful to him. Yes. Uh, so, uh, but I asked him his first question, and maybe it was that. You know, he answered it. He did well. Yes. Uh, so maybe it was that. Yeah, I, I, I remember you judged me actually in the second round last year as well. And yeah, I, 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 I can definitely see where he's coming from when he says, you know, very helpful. Because yeah, I found it very helpful too. I mean, it really I'm glad. I'm challenged glad. My, my knowledge, even though I was only, we were only in it for 10 weeks at law school. Right. It's still it's a great amazing. challenge. Just amazing. Exactly. Yeah. I, mean, that, I think that the opportunity, it's certainly, it's, it's a fun event and it's certainly a rush, but, you know, recalling first year participation, I think that opportunity to to learn from it, I think is the most useful part of it. Uh, I mean, the the practice sessions, um, you know, that I was able, able to, to help out with this year were in some ways the most satisfying part sure. because, you know, to be able to say, look, here's a bunch of like criticism. I'm going to, you know, go through a bunch of stuff because you can use this tomorrow and like you need to, you know, prepare it. Um, that was very satisfying to be able to see people take that and then improve and then you know see how they did in rounds or, or hear how they did and say oh yeah clearly they they remembered that yeah uh, and i remember that from last year as well like that um 
the, the finalists get that day of training. On that's the right, that and extra training. That is the most, I mean, sir, the, the Nelligan dinner was lovely. I'm not, I'm yeah. not trying, no, but, no, but, but, you know, but in some ways, that, that day of training was the most it's, useful part of that, yeah. and in some ways, the, the greatest reward, because to be able to intensively train your arguments for like four hours on this day with, with experts who know how to do this was an incredibly useful experience. Yes. And, so. and you will remember those things the first time you're in court. Yes. Whereas the first time I was in court, it was completely strange. And the first time I was in the Court of Appeal, I was on my own and terrified. It, it, it was fine, but I, it was very unfamiliar. Uh, and, but instead, you will have the benefit of that coaching. It will, and of course, if you participate in some of the other mooting at the university, it's just amazing yeah. how, how the university shines in its moot competitions. So as we're as we're beginning to wrap up, um, I want to ask kind of uh, some some summary questions. Sure. Um, you know, looking back on your legal career thus far, um, we we spoke a little bit about how women are a lot more present in the legal profession now than they were at the beginning. Um, and I know you've you've done a lot of work in trying to mentor young women and, and trying to to help continue that growth. Um, but what else has changed, and what has stayed the same uh, in the legal world? You know, since 1976, since the beginning of practice? It's so much more fast-paced. Okay. I remember at one point about 15 years ago thinking, I am practicing law like I'm running a race. This is crazy. When I started, there were typewriters. <laughs> Which slows everything down automatically. Automatically. <laughs> there was no faxing. Right. There were typewriters, and there was the mail. And there were couriers and hand deliveries, lots of those. That's what the students did. <laughs> but that's how you got work done. You didn't type. The assistants typed. I remember I did wills in, in my early years of practice, and I, would, I was fussy about them. Preparing a will for me was a full day's work for an assistant because you couldn't you couldn't make changes using whiteout yeah. it had to be perfect and so you know it would be created for me I'd want to change and the whole thing or at least the whole page would have to be redone it and so that slowed things down things were in the mail you know clients understood that nobody expected you to get back to them the same day or to have produce results like that um, everything has changed that way. The, the time pressures, the, the, the pressure for very fast service and to satisfy people quickly and to maintain constant communication with your client so they know what's going on uh, is completely different from the way that it used to be. Uh, so that's changed. Um, that's probably the biggest thing. I, I, that is probably the biggest thing for me. That and, of course, the changing profile of who's in the profession. So you mentioned a lot about how what you had to face back in 1976 and what your colleagues had to face as well. And... How are the challenges, are they similar or different to what we face today? And if so, how are they similar and how are they different? They're different. They're similar 
in that it is still a, a tremendous adjustment. Uh, so the adjustment is the same. Uh, the notion of getting used to charging for your time, to sitting opposite a client who is probably older than you and giving them advice and, and sort of getting used to that is, is the same. When I started, there were no billable hour targets. You, you, you didn't, there just weren't. Right. Uh, you were expected to keep track of your time because that's how it, from recovered billings, but we weren't told we had to do so many hours a day or a week. We were just supposed to work. Um, so there wasn't that added pressure and this the pressure of time wasn't, the same. It was still the case. I remember Dennis Power saying to me very early, Janice, and he meant it in the nicest way, and this isn't a nine to five job. And that sort of hit me. Oh, of course, I guess it isn't. I'm a professional. I, I, I guess it isn't. I was fine with that. I just needed to be told. Right. Uh, and you, you need to adjust to that. And what does that really mean? There wasn't the ability to work remotely uh, and remote work is a good thing and a bad thing. You are never away from your office now, whereas when I started to practice, you could only work in the office. It wasn't possible to work at home. You might be able to do some reading. But you needed the stuff in the office. You needed your files. You needed the paper. You needed the law books. Right. Uh, so that's all different. You need to be here to. You needed to be here to work. That isn't the case anymore. In some ways, that makes work easier. But it becomes very important to learn to draw lines around work so that you have a private, personal life. That's very important to do, and it needs to come from you. Uh, you no longer need to work specific hours. We're comfortable with people working remotely when they fit it in, as long as they hit their targets and do their work and the clients are happy. Uh, so that's all a little different. Um, but in many ways, it's the same. In many ways, it's the same. And the older lawyers, the more experienced lawyers can help you with it. Very important to have a mentor and talk to them. So with all that being said, and also with the fast pace, the increasingly fast pace of the legal practice as we progress through time, what advice would you give to law students about surviving and thriving, not only in law school, but the licensing process and their future legal practice or whatever future endeavors outside of law? What advice would you give them? It's the same as the advice I got. That really hasn't changed. Be prepared, do your homework, you must be fully prepared on anything you do, certainly when you show up in court. It is at least half the battle. Be confident, but make sure your confidence is based on good preparation. It will be easier to be confident if you're well prepared. Uh, communicate. Communicate with your clients, with opposing counsel, and with the people you're working with. Communication 
preparation, confidence, and you'll be fine. <laughs> Seems very fair. Um, the last question that we had, looking back on your entire career in law, Amos said it quite well, you're one of the most respected legal professionals in the city. Um, is there anything that in that career, now looking back, you would have done differently? No. I'm glad to hear. No. I've, I've been blessed. I've had a wonderful career in the law. It is a hugely rewarding career. Um, or, or certainly can be. I think it often is, no matter what you do. It is a privilege to practice law. And I have enjoyed it tremendously. I am so glad my father said, no daughter of mine quits. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, a privilege to practice law and our privilege to have you on the show. Janice, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We learned a lot from it and I hope our listeners enjoyed our talk today as well. And thank you also to the listeners for listening to this episode of The Law School Show. Once again, Janice Payne was our guest for today. You can find out more information about her on nelliganlaw.ca for all the experience that she's had in both the law and outside the law worlds. Signing off for today, my name is Amos Vang. And I'm Ryan Pistorius. Until next time, farewell. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.